the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thinking about health care these days? Well, you're not alone. And it seems that getting real information about the state of our medical system is tough to come by. That's why you've come to the right place with Dr. Bill, your radio MD. He's got the answers because he's a doctor. I said he's a doctor and he wants to hear from you right now. 877-969-8600. This is AM860, The Answer. And now, it's time for Dr. Bill, your radio MD. Good morning, everybody. This is Dr. Bill, your radio MD, coming at you on AM860, The Answer. And I'm your international Dr. Bill. You can reach me anywhere in the universe, well, anywhere on the planet anyway, at drbillradiomd.com. Click Listen Live. I'm here at 9 to 10 a.m. every Sunday morning, Eastern Standard Time. And we also save those in like a podcast form so you can retrieve the old shows if you want to listen to something again. Oh, boy. Or you can go to the station's website, am860theanswer.com. That's am860theanswer.com. We are an iHeart station, so you can pick me up on your cell phone as you tool around. And this is interactive talk radio. Oh, boy. I'm at 877 877- Nine six nine eighty six hundred. That's eight seven seven nine six nine eight six zero zero. Well, as the year draws to a close, I thought it'd be good to take a look back at the healthcare headlines and the healthcare news of the past year, at least the ones that I thought were important. You know, it's easy to miss some of the subtleties and nuances of the changes in healthcare especially when you're not in the business. If you're just a user, or a patient a client or whatever, and most people are less concerned from what I can see about innovations and economics of healthcare and more concerned about their access to basic healthcare needs and making sure that they receive good care. And that's understandable. The good news is that with rising employment, there's been an increase in the number of people who are now covered by health insurance of some form or another. And although expensive, uh, essentially catastrophic coverage is essentially in place, it's still available. The uncertain news is that Medicare and Medicaid recipients are being increasingly shoehorned into managed care plans. And managed care plans are opposed or juxtaposed, I shouldn't say opposed, or juxtaposed to fee-for-service plans. And the logic for the healthcare insurers and payers is, is really simple. Uh, ratcheting down cost saves money. And when you save money, The government's happier because they're a big payer, especially in the Medicare and Medicaid HMO, and your company makes more money, so your stockholders are happier. That means more managed care plans are emphasizing preventive care and outpatient services, and that's been a trend for a number of decades now. The insurers and the government will point to this trend, and they'll beat their chest and claim 
that this is a result of their hard work, but that ain't exactly the whole story. However, inpatient stays and hospital-based procedures have been falling steadily over the past several decades due to technology, the ability to deliver care in an outpatient setting, and the fall in the cost of equipment like x-ray machines and CT scanners and MRIs so that now it's more affordable for physician groups to have their own equipment in their office or for outpatient surgery centers or outpatient imaging centers to set up and they can provide services cheaper because they don't have a hospital to run that has to be open 24-7 and staffed with three different shifts and have different set of regulatory requirements that they have to meet. And so these surgery centers and less diagnostic equipments and imaging centers and all that have markedly decreased the number of inpatient procedures and tests and also decreased the number of admissions to the hospital. This has been a tremendous savings in and of itself. So don't let the government and the insurers fool you into thinking that it's all they're doing that these uh, inpatient stays and procedures are dropping. But the problem with ratcheting down of healthcare services for Medicare and Medicaid patients is that it is first and foremost monetarily driven. And secondly, there's no clear data on patient outcomes versus the traditional fee for service plans. Some things make sense. Of course, you want to get people in and out of the hospital as safely and as quickly as you can because they're going to be exposed to more bacteria and potential infections in the hospital, especially if they're debilitated or post-operative. And so we have to be careful about this. It's important that we protect the patients. And in doing so, uh, one method is to get them out of the hospital as soon as possible. But the push to get people out of the hospital as quickly as possible has seen a slow reversal over the past few years due to readmission rates. And this is a big, big deal in healthcare right now. The readmission rates uh, within the first 30 days of discharge are being watched closely. Now, a few years ago, the government and the insurers were pushing to get people out of the hospital as quickly as possible because they were, the hospitals were being paid on a, uh, diagnostically regulated group fee. So if you had pneumonia uncomplicated, then they figured it would take about three days of hospitalization to get you uh, stabilized and then to get you out of the hospital. That would include routine lab work, chest x-ray, EKG. And then if there were other tests that were ordered that were deemed necessary, those became outliers. Those outliers could then be billed uh, at fixed rates to the Medicare, Medicaid, and insurers. And so there was a push, uh, case management, who are the nurses that come around and tell you this patient doesn't meet criteria for in-hospital stay. Uh, There was a push to get people out of the hospital quicker and quicker. That has slowed down now because People were being sent home early. They were coming back within 30 days. And Medicare said, well, look, if they're coming back within 30 days, then you must not have done your job the first time. So we're going to ding you and we're not going to give you as much money for this next admission. And if your readmission rates 
within 30 days go up too high, we're going to put you on probation, suspension, whatever. So now we're supposed to keep them longer to make sure they're stable before we send them home. And that way, hopefully they won't relapse and end up back in the hospital within 30 days. That affects not only the patient, but also the hospitals, Medicare and Medicaid reimbursement. And that's a negative for them. And it's a negative for the patient if they go home and they have to come back within 30 days because they've had a relapse. So this is big news this year that we're slowing down that trend and reversing the uh, push to get people out of the hospital as quickly. And we're looking more at the 30 day readmission rate. Now, this is another big deal. And uh, for those of you who have been with me for a long time, you'll probably remember that years ago, I talked about the uh, production in healthcare rather than the consumption, because the Democrats were talking about how expensive healthcare was and what a big part of the of the federal budget and of the personal budget that healthcare cost ate up. And I said, wait a minute, you're not taking into account what healthcare produces, the number of jobs, uh, not only including healthcare workers, but also drug company workers and manufacturers, salespeople, durable medical equipment, all these things that are being produced and people being employed and money being generated from their activities and from the sales of these goods and from the sales of medications and durable medical equipment and imaging and uh, procedures and all this, uh, that was not taken into account to counterbalance what people perceived to be uh, an unwarranted and unhoward amount of money being spent by the society on health care. Well, guess what? Healthcare now employs more people than any other industry except for the government. So the great debate about the cost of health care in the United States was really uh, a sham because the actual cost was not calculated because it didn't take into account the production side of medicine. And I've known for a long time that medicine was one of the largest employers. Now the Bureau of Labor and Statistics has shown this year that definitively it is the largest employer of workers in the United States. And so we have this very solid and sound information from our Bureau of Labor and Statistics, and they keep tabs on jobs, job creation, and uh, the different industries that employ people. And the demand will only increase over the next few decades. Nurses are now the number one employees in hospitals, comprising approximately 25% of that labor force. And office nurses obviously are big too. What does this mean? The emphasis is on taking care of patients and making money for stockholders. So we're back to our original thesis, which we hit on early in the show. So those two goals will constantly need to compromise with each other in order to satisfactorily meet the needs of the public. Yeah, we want to save money, but we want to do it safely. We want to make sure that everybody is taken care of as well as possible. Of course, nothing's 100%. You know, you're not always going to be 100%. And I use a 95% rule in my practice and in my finances and in my life and in my interpersonal relationships. If if I can get it right about 95% of the time, if I can collect 95% of the money, 
if I can keep the wife, and this is the biggest one, happy 95% of the time, then life will be good. Not only are more people employed in healthcare industry than in any other industry, but the number of insured patients has gone up with fuller employment. So this is a plus two. This is a big deal. And this is headline news. And you say, well, gee, that doesn't really sound like something that's going to affect health. Well, yeah, it does, because it means more access to health care for more people. Now, the cost of health insurance that's borne by employers has also added significantly or has also added significantly to the average worker's income. So an indirect and unmeasured index of workers' income is the health care that is purchased for them by their employer. And so if you look at the uh, Congressional Budget Office numbers, the actual not the uh, not the hard uh, gross wages that you have on your W-2 form, but the actual amount of money that's being paid to you directly or indirectly, and your wages has gone up. So wages are going up, and they're going up faster than people realize. And this is an important statistic that's often left out when we talk about wage growth. And you'll notice that the Democrats are not talking about wage growth right now because if we go into it, not only are your gross amounts of money going up, you're getting more money your per hour or your uh, sales share, all that is going up, but also the cost of health insurance is going up and, and you're getting health insurance, most of you, most of us, from our employer. So that's another side of the of the income dollar that we receive. So the outlook is positive for wage growth based on employer's share of health care cost, on increased employment, and on fuller insuring, insuring of the population. Now, another underreported headline grabber is that most Americans now agree that the expansion of Medicare or Medicaid-like programs to cover most Americans is overwhelmingly desired a universal health care plan. And even though a democratically controlled House of Representatives may be able to pass such a bill, it will never get through the Senate, nor will the president sign such a bill. In addition, the health care bill will increase dramatically the amount of money and taxes that will need to be collected in order to support such programs. And depending on the state of health insurance and the cost containment of health insurance, the 2020 election may well ride on universal health insurance and its affordability. This will not mean that private health insurers like Aetna and United will no longer be in the picture. The government will just subcontract out the administration of these programs to the health insurance companies as they are doing now. They're already doing this with Medicare and Medicaid at the state levels. In addition, our Medicare tax would certainly go from its current three and a half or four percent to a maximum or a minimum, I should say, of 10 percent of our gross wages. And I, I don't think there would be a cap on income uh, that could be taxed under the Medicare tax if it, if we did add these programs and we did have universal health care coverage. So this is a big deal. Now, up until recently, there's been a cap on the amount of income that could could be Medicare tax. So let's say it was $120,000. Your 
your first $120,000 of gross income was taxed at, say, 4% for the Medicare tax. So that would be $4,800 a year. Four times 12 is 48 and $4,800 a year. And that was the cap. So if you made a million bucks, you still didn't have to pay any more. Now, if we, or should I say in the future, if we have a universal health care plan, there'll certainly be a need to remove the income cap so that no matter how much money you earn, your gross wage, that 10% would be taken out of that out of your gross wages, no matter how much you made, whether it was 50,000 or 5 million. So that's going to mean a big fight with people who have money, the top four or 5% of the wage earners, and they pay most of the taxes. So they have a lot of power. So we've got a lot of fights coming up. Uh, interestingly, uh, I was talking with an accountant who's a PhD and a professor at a university in Nova Scotia just last week, a Canadian here, and brought her mother in to see me. We talked about the Canadian health care system, and as she's in a position to better understand and review the health care costs in Canada, she was in agreement with me that health care in Canada is more expensive than health care in the United States, and you get less. Nevertheless, most Canadians still want universal health care coverage. Now, universal coverage will not only be more, more costly, but there'll be much more containment of usage of the resources. So there'll be a doling out of the resources. So health care resources will be rationed as they are in Canada, except for those who can afford secondary insurance policies or pay cash and policies, uh, secondary policies that will cover expenses expenditures and services that are non-covered procedures under the standard plans. So there'll be a multi-tier healthcare system. There already is, but it, it may become more apparent. And you may say, well, at least everyone will have some basic coverage. And I think that's the way a lot of Canadians and Europeans feel that at least you got some basic coverage. And that's a fair argument. You can't argue with that. But we also have to remember that our commitment to free enterprise and to self-determination has to be part of the uh, whole formula. Now, one of the problems with the readmission rates and the length of stays is that we are not sure how this is affecting health care outcomes. However, there was a small study in the American Medical Association Journal and they found that death rates rose slightly among heart failure and pneumonia patients uh, who were released from the hospital early in an attempt to cut down on 30-day readmission rates under the Medicare and Medicaid guidelines. This is not a big study, and they're not big numbers, but they are certainly significant in that they point out the need for further investigation into this to make sure that there's no trend of discharging people early in order to save money, only to have worse outcomes. But we already know the 30-day readmission rate has been a problem, so it's not a stretch to say, well, there may be some deaths that are resulting from early discharge from the hospital under the push from HMOs and Medicare and Medicaid. There's a twofold problem here, and this is current news. One, non-medical people are making decisions on health care which appears driven primarily by economics. And I say appears because I don't think that 
everybody who is involved in the economics of medicine is heartless. I think many are well-meaning, well-intentioned people. The second half of this is that young doctors are being taught that managing care and saving health care dollars are paramount. They think that they have a responsibility and duty to ration out health care because of limited health care dollars. And this is ever so apparent when you talk with the residents at our hospital. We have a family practice program, and they do rotations through both managed care offices and fee-for-service offices. And one of my residents told me that she had just finished a managed care rotation, and she really liked the whole concept, the whole idea of focusing on wellness. And that's great. I mean, I don't have a problem with that. I think that we need to emphasize that people need to stay healthier and take better care of themselves. But, you know, honestly, the use of uh, medications like statins for high cholesterol and ACE inhibitors and ARBs for blood pressure have done more to decrease inpatient care and to increase longevity than any preventative Uh, programs that I have been able to see or that I know of. And you say, well, doc, isn't it a good thing to stay slim? Absolutely. You'll cut down on your morbidity and mortality in a number of areas from your joints to your cardiovascular system to your brain. But there are a host of diseases that are genetically predisposed and you're still going to have to take medicine. I've lost a tremendous amount of weight after my surgery And my blood pressure actually went up and I've had to increase the amount of blood pressure medicine I take because I have a genetic predisposition to it. So I think that it's important to emphasize preventative medicine to people and to say that you need to moderate your eating and your drinking. You need to stay active and get exercise and you need to make sure you're getting enough rest and do all the things that have been preached by doctors for millennia but proselytizing to the public alone is not the answer. And spending too much time teaching young physicians the nuances and uh, the various preventative care methods and techniques takes away from learning about pathology. Now, let's face it, guys. Doctors are here to treat pathology. That's our first and foremost purpose. Yes, we're also here to educate, and that's part of the preventative aspect of it. So when we do educate, we want to let people know that there are better ways to lead their life that will lead to a happier and healthier life. But at the same time, we don't want to focus just on that. We want to stop and say, wait a minute, you're having stiffness in your hands in the morning, and you're not able to grasp things, and you've had a little bit of a cold lately, and your joints are achy, and by the way, there's a family history of rheumatoid arthritis or some other autoimmune disease, and rather than say, well, you just need to do more exercise and eat more antioxidants, we need to check you out and make sure you don't have rheumatoid arthritis because there are treatments for rheumatoid arthritis which will preserve your joints and help you live longer. So we need to emphasize not only the preventative aspect, but also the treatment and diagnostic aspects to the young physicians. And and I see this in the family practice residents in our hospital, that they just don't have that depth of 
training and exposure. They may have the exposure in the hospital, but they don't have that depth of training that I see or that I saw when I was going through training and that they don't have the emphasis on pathology that we had. And this bleeds over into critical thinking because if you are not being taught the ABCs of pathology, but you are being taught the ABCs of preventative care, then you're going to miss and not understand some of the subtleties and nuances of the pathology involved. For instance, what makes heart enzymes go up? And these are common tests we do when people come to the hospital, especially if they have chest pain. We want to know if they have damage to their heart muscle. And when there's damage to the heart muscle, the heart enzymes go up. We use one test called uh, BNP and uh, TPI, and atrial natriuretic peptides and other enzymes that go up when there's damage to heart muscle. But some of these tests will go up if there's damage to skeletal muscle, if you bruise your arm, or to bowel muscle, if you have a bowel obstruction. And so these are sensitive but not specific, some of these tests. And the cheaper ones are the ones that the hospitals like to use. Well, let's say that you've just had bowel surgery and you also had a pacemaker put in at the same time. And somebody says, well, we better get some heart enzymes and they're elevated. Well, the patient's not having any heart symptoms now, but guess what? You just screwed a wire into their heart muscle in their, inside their heart, and that's going to damage a few cells. And you've just manipulated and cut their bowel, which is going to kill some, some muscle cells in the bowel wall. And so these enzymes are going to go up. So that critical thinking is not as um, implanted in the young physicians as it used to be. And some of these tests are extremely sensitive, and they require some interpretation because they're not always specific. Sensitive means they'll pick up any damage to the muscle. Specific means that they won't just separate out the heart muscle from the skeletal or the bowel muscle the smooth muscle, we call it. So that's another big deal that we need to think about. Uh, here's something that uh, I found interesting. There was a report in the medical news this past few weeks that there has been an increase in infections in people who have gone for stem cell pain-relieving shots. And I had a Canadian patient come in, and she had gone for stem cell shots down here last year, she ended up in the intensive care unit and in the hospital with a staph infection when she went back home. She was in the hospital for three months. And so this is being reported now that there are problems with infections from these stem cell injections. And the government has said to, I think it's Amgen, I may be wrong, but one of the big uh, companies that produce the stem cells, that they need to take a look at their manufacturing process and their quality assurance and make sure that they're not sending out infected materials. In addition, I haven't found any solid evidence that stem cell therapy is efficacious and it's really helpful. I've heard people say that it took away their knee joint or their shoulder joint pain and other people have told me it doesn't do anything. Um, I've had now one person come in who's had a serious life-threatening infection from stem cell 
uh, therapy. And I've even heard doctors who are providing stem cell therapy say that they're not sure that it does anything other than decrease inflammation. Well, you can do that with cortisone, with ibuprofen, with aspirin. I don't know that there are any solid studies to show that it actually helps regenerate joint tissue or that it actually permanently decreases musculoskeletal pain in patients who receive injections with these uh, stem cells in various parts of their body where they're hurting. And so we need to see if there's any real science behind it. And as far as I know, these procedures are not reimbursed by health insurance plans. So you got to pay out of pocket and it's not cheap. And you know, it's like $5,000 to get an injection in your knee. It takes about five minutes. Go in, you clean the knee, prep it, stick the needle in there and shoot the juice in the knee. And that's it. Uh, there's a little bit more involved in growing, harvesting and processing the stem cells so that they are available in an injectable form. But all in all, it's really not that difficult and it is expensive and it's cash. People are paying for this. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So there are complications and potentially life-threatening complications with the stem cell therapy. This is brand new news coming out just within the past month. Another headline grabber was that the confirmation of Judge Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court would affect not only women's rights, but also women's health care. Because if abortion, Roe versus Wade, is reversed, there'll be a decrease in availability of abortions for women, and that would be a health problem for a lot of women. Now, I don't know how true this is. Uh, I think that some of this is a scare tactic similar to what the uh, group led by Dr. Nathanson back in the 1950s and 60s uh, did to get abortion legalized, and they made up all kinds of stories about back alley uh, abortions and people dying from them. And, and, and Nathanson came out years later and became a pro-lifer and wrote a book debunking all of the pro-abortion, pro-choice arguments that he said he spearheaded and that were basically dishonest. So we have to take a close look at this. Will there be a challenge to Roe versus Wade at the Supreme Court level? I don't know. I really don't. I don't think so. Now, the, the Supreme Court has already turned down some state level, uh, some challenges to state level legislation that has limited abortions and said that it's not the federal government's place. It's the state's place to do that. They can regulate that. And that I guess is what's triggering some of the women to say, wait a minute, this is affecting us, our health. Now we don't have the access we used to have. And there's no real evidence that legalized abortions have improved women's health care anyway, other than in cases of medical necessity. And those were done anyway. Doctors were doing abortions before it was legal in many states. You just call it a DNC. And it was done primarily for health care reasons and not for the uh, convenience of, uh, of birth control. And so the big scare back in the 50s and 60s, led by Dr. Nathanson, was largely hoo-ha. 
And we have to put this into context. And I don't think the Supreme Court's going to be able to significantly impact a specific subgroup, their health care, although it does have the ability to overturn and modify and send back down to the lower courts debates over health care and the federal government's involvement in that. But uh, I don't think this is going to be a big deal. Uh, I think the women are are concerned and uh, perhaps overreacting for their own uh, agenda. But uh, I'm not that concerned about it. And I don't think it's going to affect women's health care. I think the greater effect on women's health care and all of our health cares is the uh, rationing of health care and this push by managed care and the federal government to get people out of the hospital faster without good data to show whether or not it is really uh, safe and helpful. And as I noted above, there seems to be at least some uh, nascent research into this saying that that may not be the best idea and that mortality may go up if we do push that. Well, this is what I need to grab, a cup of joe, and I'll be right back. I am Dr. Bill, your Radio MD. With SRN News, I'm Michael Harrington in Washington. Officials in Indonesia say the death toll from that tsunami yesterday, believed to be triggered by a volcano, has climbed to 222 officially with 843 people hurt. There are scores of people missing, though, and an agency spokesman says that those numbers are likely to rise. The volcano erupted between the Sunda Strait, that's near Java and Sumatra Islands, that links the Indian Ocean and the Java Sea, Interrupted about 24 minutes before the tsunami yesterday. The early days of the partial government shutdown, not too bad. Minimal impact because of the looming Christmas holiday. However, starting Wednesday, things could be difficult. And no deal is likely to be worked out before Thursday because the Senate won't be back until then. And rescue teams have recovered bodies of nine construction workers in Russia trapped inside a burning potash mine. This is SRN News. Dr. Bill for Bay Area Medical, located at 6399 38th Avenue North in St. Pete, 727-384-6411, 727-384-6411. Full-service clinic with x-ray, heart imaging, ultrasound, stress testing, and minor surgery. We provide quality health care in a warm and friendly atmosphere. We are multilingual, well-trained, and certified. Most American insurance and new patients accepted. Bay Area Medical, home of can care, 727 727- 7-3-8-4-6-4-1-1. Hello, this is Dr. Bill Handelman for our good friends at Tampa Bay Imaging. TBI provides state-of-the-art MRI and CT scanning with the lowest radiation possible. Most insurance plans accepted and self-pay rates are very competitive. TBI is conveniently located in Tampa and St. Pete with evening and weekend appointments, so call TBI today or ask your doctor. In Tampa, call 813-386-3674. St. Pete, call 727-545-9674. Did you know hackers in the U.S. steal private information from smartphones and other Internet-connected devices every 39 seconds? Using an unsecured Wi-Fi connection, even at home, can put all your personal and financial data at risk. Your bank details, passwords, social security numbers, your home address, and more might be at risk. Hackers will even go as far as stealing your children's identity. Download Hotspot Shield VPN right now to protect yourself and your family. Secure your login details when logging into your bank accounts or using social media and more. Hotspot 
ThreatShield even protects you from millions of cyber threats and online scams. What's the privacy and security of your family worth? Get military-grade encryption on up to five devices for just $2.99 per month. Go to HotspotShield.com slash radio now. When you see how easy it is to get military-grade encryption for all your devices, then you'll wonder why it took this long to secure your personal information. Go to HotspotShield.com slash radio now to download the Hotspot Shield app. That's HotspotShield.com slash radio. Saturday afternoons at 12.15. Join Paul Porter and the home team for the Casper's Company, McDonald's Restaurant's High School Athlete of the Week, honoring student-athletes making a positive impact. The Casper's Company, McDonald's Restaurant's High School Athlete of the Week is swimming and baseball star Chase Renninger from Tampa Prep. The Casper's Company, McDonald's Restaurant's High School Athlete of the Week, Saturday afternoons at 12.15 during the home team on AM860. The Answer. Here is your exclusive AccuWeather forecast. After patchy fog for the morning, we'll have a sunny day today, high 65. Partly cloudy tonight with patchy late night fog, low 48. Then patchy fog will continue to the early parts of the morning tomorrow with partial sunshine, high 70, and a clear night. Low tomorrow night, 52. For Christmas Day, sun and some clouds, high 74. That's your AccuWeather forecast. I'm Kevin Snyder for AM860, The Answer. And I'm back with a little bit of Don Henley and Dirty Laundry. And I'm Dr. Bill, your radio MD. We're talking about the headline grabbers in the world of medicine and healthcare over the past year. Now, a big grabber for the medical community and as well for the average citizen is that the medical community. Uh, is that big corporations and healthcare providers are banding together to start their own generic drug companies. And even Amazon's gotten into the act, and they're looking at it, I think, with Chase Morgan Stanley or Stanley Morgan Chase. We also see insurers buying pharmacy management companies like Caremark and CVS. So big companies like Aetna and United and Cigna are trying to purchase these uh, pharmacy management companies so that they can directly bargain with, deal with the generic drug manufacturers and the pharmaceutical companies. And the rise in the cost of medicine has been of great concern, especially to the Medicare population like me, since fee-for-service Medicare recipients don't have coverage for their prescription drugs unless they uh, purchase the Part D plan. And even then, not everything is covered. And, of course, with the managed uh, HMO Medicare plans, the Advantage plans, as they are called, you're limited in what medications you can uh, get through the plan without having to pay extra. Now, in my experience, the generic drugs have dramatically driven down the cost of medications for all of us still there are medicines like the Amavig, the monoclonal antibody that I'm using, that is not on the list of preferred drugs for most plans. And so you got to pay more, either all of it out of pocket or, in the case of my secondary insurance, 
I have to pay three or 400 bucks for a three month supply. And, you know, you're talking about a lot of money. So you're talking about over a thousand dollars a year, just in co-pays for my medications. They're expensive. And the push now is for the industry to try and figure out how to produce and or uh, manipulate the drug market to their own ends. And, and the pharmaceutical companies are doing quite well. Now, the healthcare industry, their stocks have perhaps doubled since the crash in 2008, whereas the pharmaceutical industry as a whole has gone up about five times. The price of their stocks has gone up almost five times, probably four times now with the little setback and the correction in the market. But they're doing very well. And there's been a great outcry from the public, especially in this past year, to get Congress to do something to regulate the cost of medications. And Congress has had hearings, but they're not going to do anything. And the reason is that whether they're Democrats or Republicans, almost all of them are receiving some help in their campaigns from the pharmaceutical companies. And you say, well, how does that affect us? Well, I'll tell you what. It means that the House and the Senate are not going to pass any bills that would restrict the uh, pharmaceutical companies or limit the pharmaceutical companies' ability to sell their products at whatever price they want. You know, uh, 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 not even not just new drugs, not even just the innovative things, but also old-timey drugs like doxycycline, which has been around since I was a kid. That had gone down to pennies per pill, and now it's back up over $10 a pill. And when one drug company uh, CEO was questioned about increasing the cost 400% on one of their medications, they said it would be immoral for them not to get as much money as they could for their company and their stockholders. So... Of course, Congress didn't do anything about it, and we also have heard rumors in the past few months of the generic drug companies like Teva and Dr. Reddy uh, informally fixing prices, meeting on the golf course or wherever they meet, and saying, what are you charging for this? I think we could get more. And so that's another thing that Congress needs to look at. If they're not going to address this and we're not going to have any control over this, then we, the people, need to do something. And I think that's in part what the health insurance companies and the big companies like Amazon and uh, Chase Bank and different companies are looking at and want want to take care of and, and weigh in on. By the way, if you think about it, you may say, well, I don't contribute to those crazy Democrats. I don't give any money to their to their political campaigns. Yeah, you do. If you're buying medications, you certainly do. Directly or indirectly, you're going to give some money to them, whether you like it or not, and vice versa for the Democrats who say, I don't want to give anything to the Republicans. Well, I'm sorry. If you went out and picked up that prescription today, you just did. It's a quirky world now, isn't it? Oh, my goodness. What a strange world we live in indeed. Well, now, most of us are employed in the healthcare industry. Most of us have some kind of insurance. 
most of us are living better. Will this translate into a better lifestyle for most Americans? What about the uninsured rate? Well, the uninsured rate uh, peaked in 2011-2012 for the non-elderly population, purportedly at 18%. I'm not sure I believe that. Um, But that's the numbers that were brought forward by the CDC. And now they say it's dropped down to a little above 10%. And they attribute this to, in part, Obamacare, since that covers pre-existing problems and helps people who are not insurable otherwise and are too young for Medicare to get some coverage. What this means is that they, in name, have a policy, but it doesn't mean that they have coverage, that is, that they can go to the doctor with a cold or a cut and have that taken care of without paying out of pocket because they have a huge deductible. Most of these plans are five to $6,000 deductibles. So it's a little bit uh, smoke and mirrors, a little bit. And to that extent, I will say that I'm guessing that the real drop of the uninsured has been maybe three or four percent when you factor in that they still have to pay a good deal of their health care cost out of pocket. And that's not insurance. Insurance is when everybody chips into a common pool and those who need it with the appropriate screening will have money taken out and utilized for their health care. And I don't think that's happening. So this, this is a little bit phony. But let's just say that the uninsured rate has gone down. Well, we also have to look at the increased employment rate. With fuller employment, there are more people who are falling under employer plans, and so there's going to be more people who are insured. And that doesn't have anything to do with Obamacare. And I still contend that Obamacare has significantly driven up the cost of health care for you and for me. And that makes it, uh, again, questionable as to whether or not we really have better coverage. Yes, we may have more people who have in their hand a policy, and that policy is titular and in name. It is insurance. But if you're paying much more for your health care and you never even use your insurance, most of us don't. Most of us don't go into the hospital with uh, major crises, it's just a small percentage of the population that actually uh, needs the care, then you're really not getting any benefit out of it. Why do you have insurance? I mean, why don't we just put our money into health savings accounts and uh, put a little bit into a catastrophic pool, say for 25 or 30,000 and up problems if you're in an automobile accident and end up in the ICU? for a week or two, but otherwise, why not just put it into health savings accounts and use that money for specific and bona fide legitimate health care needs for doctor's visits, emergency room visits, medications, prescription medications, and uh, durable medical equipment that's needed for broken bones or whatever. And I think that we would benefit 
more from that. We would actually have better coverage and more realistic and more hands-on coverage. And we would be able to limit the power of the health insurance companies and we'd be able to make more choices for ourselves. Of course, we need guidance because this is a difficult area, even for physicians. We debate among ourselves what needs to be done, what tests should be run, and what surgery should be performed, what procedures should be allowed and not allowed, what works and what doesn't. It's a, you know, it's a very research and intellect intensive business. And that's, that's just the way it is. And, and there's not much we can do to escape that reality. We do have to stop and consider all of the factors if we're going to be scientific about the treatment. And it's not always clear what the best avenue is. And maybe preventative care in many situations is going to be the answer, but in many it will not be. So I, th I think that we have to take with a grain of salt the uninsured rate among the non-elderly population dropping from a high of 18.2% down to a little over 10% uh, and say, uh, is that uh, on paper or is that is that really coverage? Are we really giving coverage to people and that coverage is helping them pay for their bills? <clears throat> Now, another thing that's underreported is that premium changes vary considerably and dramatically from state to state. And this was largely an outcome of the Democrats' refusal to open up health insurance into the interstate markets so that in every state you have to register your health insurance company. So Blue Cross Blue Shield of New York is different than Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Florida. And of course that means uh, duplication of bureaucratic services. It means <clears throat> different rate structures depending on the market and different amounts of money that can be collected for premiums based upon the income of the people in those markets. And it, it becomes quite complex. And you say, well, it makes sense, Doc, because if you live in a state that has an average income of 50000 <clears throat> versus a state that has an average income of 80000 obviously the state that has 50000 is going to collect less premiums. And so if someone from Florida goes to New York and gets sick and their health care system is more expensive as well, then people in Florida are going to have to pay more money for the guy from Florida who's in New York and got sick. Is that fair? Well, I think that if we broke down the borders and let the insurers work interstate rather than just within a state, then I think we would see a whole different ballgame because premiums would change based on regional flows and attitudes and needs and demands and cost rather than on state by state cost. So that would certainly help to even things out somewhat and it would make it easier for you and I to travel to another state and get health care without having to worry that our premiums were going to be, or our, not our premiums, but our deductibles 
would be higher if we got sick and had an appendix removed in New York than if we had it done here at home in Florida. And that's a concern, especially for those who travel for business or who are vacationing. And we need to stop and think about that. So that's another aspect of healthcare that has been in the news this year. And this is something that undoing Obamacare hopefully will take care of. And the Republicans have wanted this for a long time, that there be interstate uh, sales of health insurance allowed and that health insurance be portable from state to state. So if you bought a policy here in Florida and then you got transferred to California, that you would still be able to keep your Florida policy if you wanted it, or that you would be able to keep it until you got uh, similar coverage, equivalent coverage in California. So the annual percentage change in private health insurance expenditures per enrollee uh, has been changing up and down over the past several decades. And actually the highest point was in the mid seventies. And I've said before, on the show that the 1970s was the worst decade economically of any decade in my lifetime. And this is statistically proven. And we saw a 16% uh, average annual change in insurance expenditures per enrollee in 1975, 76, 77, which has been higher than anything else at any other time in history the history over which this has been tracked from the 1970s forward. And this is from the Kaiser Family uh, Fund. Kaiser does pretty good work on looking at healthcare statistics and making some sense of it. Uh, although you can't always make sense of healthcare statistics. They're, they're, they're just too complex. Uh, so the average annual change in health insurance expenditures per enrollee has been about 5.3% annually over the past 50 years, 50 plus years, since 1970. So that makes it uh, a little bit ahead of inflation. And so we have to stop and think about what this means. And does it mean that doctors and hospitals are gouging and that they're charging more money than they should? Or does it mean that the quality of healthcare and the technology in healthcare have increased so dramatically that we have to pay more for the upgraded services? I mean, you're not going to go in and get a, a Chevy that's just bare bones versus a Cadillac that's fully loaded, even though they're the same frame, the same engine, and a lot of the same basic uh, uh, equipment and suspension because you're getting an upgraded car with the Cadillac, you're getting more perks. Well, if you're getting better health care, and the, the example I use is if you had a heart attack in 1960, there wasn't a whole lot that could be done. You were basically an invalid. You got onto uh, disability and that was it. Now you go in, if you got it early enough, caught early enough, you get a stent put in, you're out in a couple of days, you're playing golf in two weeks. Yeah, you're paying 10 to 20 times more than you paid in, in in 1960, but look at what you're getting. So this is also a little bit fictitious. We have to take that into account when we talk about inflation in healthcare and in health insurance and in the cost of our healthcare. We're getting close to the end of the show here, folks. I want to wish everybody a really Merry Christmas and a Happy Holiday. 
And I really mean that. I think, that, again, as I've said, this is the time of the year that we need to share with ourselves and with, with our family, friends, our community, and our world, our love and concern and care. And I hope everybody gets exactly what they want. And I'm with you forever. I am Dr. Bill, your Radio MD, and I'm out of here. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.